You're listening to Speak Loud, resilient stories of triumph and hope, helping you to turn your past into fuel for your best future. Here's your host, founder of the 501c3 Share, providing resource and support for trauma victims, and a survivor herself, Tiffany Barnes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Speak Loud podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tiffany Barnes, and thank you for joining me here today. I've got a lovely guest in store. Her name is Savan Hong. I said it right? Perfect. Okay. Perfectly. Okay. Good, good, good. I'm so happy about that. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not the best at names. Uh, she comes from a land far and wide, Connecticut. I think you might be my second guest on the entire show that has come from Connecticut. Are you from originally Connecticut? No, or? no, nowhere close to Connecticut. Um, I'm originally from Israel. Okay. Um, so definitely far and wide. Yeah. And I've actually had guests on from Israel. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> so she's living in Connecticut right now, but uh, she authors and illustrates the best-selling children's book series, The Fun Day Books, including Benny J and The Horrible Halloween, George J and The Miserable Monday, Emily D and The Fearful First Day, and Avery G and The Scary End of School. Her inspiring books focus on neurodiverse children who overcome their challenges with perseverance and bravery. Savan also serves as a trustee on the boards of the Westport Public Library, the Rita Allen Foundation, Multicultural Children's Book Day, and the ASPCA. When she's not working, Savan enjoys being a wife to her lovely husband and a mother to her two wonderful children. They have a dog and a cat, and as I mentioned, live in Connecticut. Without further ado, please welcome the lovely, the amazing Savan Hong. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You made Absolutely. my life sound very magical there. <laughs> <laughs> well, your life is pretty magical. I was telling you before we hit record, I've never had anybody of your, your caliber on my show, or should I say just that does what you do. So I want to say before we, we get into why you're here, the Super Fun Day book series is a collection of inspirational social stories yeah. through which young children learn how to work through and overcome challenges. That's right. And um, social stories are a tool used in special education that help kids kind of lay out all of their feelings and all of their worries and then give them specific steps so that they themselves can overcome those challenges on their own. And I used that framework and I said, you know what, it shouldn't just be in an educational setting where special ed teachers work with kids and do this. This could be something that happens in homes and in libraries and everywhere. And so I used that structure to create this series of books so that kids can have a way of being okay with the fact that sometimes things are scary and hard sure. and, and learn how to fix it on their own, right? And have that sense of pride and confidence that they get when they've accomplished something that they didn't think they could do. So I think I kind of like dissected why you're here to speak loud. But I'll <laughs> still ask you, what are you here to speak loud about? I am here to speak loud about the power and the benefits of neurodiversity and how cool it is to be different. Love that. And I think that's something that we definitely need to be bringing to the forefront in today's world because there's so much bullying. There's so many kids committing suicide at such a young age. I mean, it's just 
sickening and maddening that that this is even happening. And I think your books can really shed a light on helping kids to overcome those challenges and those bullies. And the again, the scary things that happen uh, as being a, a young adult in this world or just a young child, uh, regardless. So go ahead. You had something to say. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> I think books and in my case, picture books, but all books are incredibly powerful tools to help someone feel like they're not alone. When you see a character go through an experience or share feelings that you have, suddenly you're not the only one out there. It normalizes that experience. It normalizes that difference. And and that's what I've set out to do with these, these books. In my case, they're picture books. And I have children who wear headphones in the illustrations so that you know, when when you're that kid and you're like, oh, look, there's somebody else. There's a character in a book that that that's wearing headphones because of sensory issues. It must not it must be OK. I must not be the weird kid. Right. The character is doing it, too. And and it goes from both directions because it helps the kids who are neurodivergent to see themselves and say, my different, my difference is okay. My experience is normal. But then to your point, it also helps the kids who may not be wearing those headphones to stop being like, I wonder why that kid sitting over there wearing headphones, what's wrong with him? And being like, oh, no, I saw that in a book. That's fine. That's normal. That's just like a kid being tall or short or or any difference that we have. And so really kind of books are are such a great way to do that for children. So how long ago did you write this first book, we'll say, of the series? Um, I wrote the first book three years ago. And and I say that kind of lightly because all of these books were social stories that I designed for my own children. Mm. And they are true stories that happened to them. And so I had the structure of the story in place already because I use them as tools for my kids. Both my kids are neurodivergent. I am also neurodivergent. And um, and they worked so well with my kids that, you know, I was like, it's not just about helping my kids. It, that It can't be just that. That feels so shallow and limiting. But if I can share these stories with other families and other parents and give them these tools, then it can help their kids too. And and the first story was a story where I felt like the biggest failure as a parent because it was kindergarten. My eldest son, um, who is diagnosed with autism and ADHD, um, was dressed up for Halloween and refused to go inside the school. Like absolute refusal. And it's the Halloween parade and there's going to be candy and a party. And as a parent, you're like, this is supposed to be one of the best days of the whole school year, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is fun. And, and my kid is not leaving the car. Like, absolutely. And I sat there for what felt like hours, probably wasn't hours, but that's what it felt like. And I couldn't get him to go out of the car. And finally I gave up and we drove home. And I'm like, this is me failing completely as a parent. Cause as parents were very hard on ourselves Um, But then I stepped back and I said, okay, let's figure out what were the drivers for this behavior? What were the what what were the reasons why this child did not want to go to school in this situation? What was so scary? What was so terrifying? And um, throughout the year, I worked with him and his teachers and his team. And we figured out there's a bunch of scary things for kids in Halloween. Right. Like 
one of the things he was worried about, and, and he was a child in kindergarten who wore headphones, was that the parade was going to be so loud. And we told him that he could wear his headphones with his costume and that would be okay. Or that suddenly he would see all of these kids in their costumes, but he wouldn't recognize his friends and he'd be in school and there would be no friends. And so we talked through, you know, in choice time at school, they played dress up in kindergarten. And this is just like that. And he would still be able to see his friends. And we walked through all of the different steps. And the following year in first grade, he was able to get out of the car in his costume, wearing his headphones and participate and loved it and loved it ever since. And so that was the impetus for the first book. And I think for me, it, I grew up in the 70s. Kids were not really diagnosed with any of this stuff, right? Um, in my mind, the only idea of somebody with autism is Rain Man, right? Um, and, sure. and, and you had all of these children who were going through challenges and were just assumed to be the kid who misbehaves, right? That kid has a problem. That kid is a bad, quote unquote, kid. And and I don't want that to be the world that my kids grow up in, right? Like when I was diagnosed, I was 47. And suddenly all of these things that felt like personal failures that I couldn't do came into clarity. So I really struggled with spelling. I remember in second grade, I failed spelling. Who gets an F on their report card in second grade? I did in spelling for the whole year because that's not the way my brain works or I struggled with reading and 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 throughout my life I thought that that was just a a failure of my ability right like there was something wrong with me that I couldn't get through these books well and and when I got my diagnosis I realized wait a minute that's not my fault right like that just means my brain is wired differently and different is okay. And suddenly all those things that I was so hard on myself about for so many years kind of went away and I'm making it very simplistic. And, and you go through the kind of a, an anger process. I'm so angry that this happened and all the rest of that stuff. But when you work through all of that and the other end, you're like, it's not me. It, my self-esteem shouldn't be hurt by this. It should be, no, this is just my brain being different and different is okay. And there's incredible things that I can do that other people can't do because my brain is wired this way. But now we live in a world where more kids get diagnosed and we can provide the supports for them so that when they go through school, they're not going to feel like I'm the dumb one, right? Or there's something wrong with me. Um, no, now they can understand that my brain is wired differently. And to me, that's really, really important because the, the, the rates of kids who suffer from depression and suicide who don't have a diagnosis are so much higher than those who do. Because when you have a diagnosis as a child, you have an understanding of who you are. And when you don't have a diagnosis, you think there's this big secret about yourself that something is wrong and nobody knows. And it erodes your self-esteem and it erodes your sense of self and and many many of those kids when they hit their teenage years suffer great bouts of depression and so normalizing this topic getting kids to talk about it at a young age 
you know, really changing the mindset about this. So it's no longer just Rain Man or Elon Musk or whoever, right? That that it's women, it's girls, it's it it's other, it, it it's normal, right? One in five people is neurodivergent, right? Like that is the message that I think we can get out there. And and again, I'm going back to this point, which is why I write these books, right? I want people to feel a sense of proud pride about their difference because then everyone else will look at them and be like, oh, okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. So when you wrote this first book, it was the, sorry, I put this paper away, the, the scary <laughs> the, Halloween, right? Yeah, Benny J the horrible, the horrible Halloween. Right. So is Benny J your son? So I know um, he's a reflection yeah. of your son, but he, he looks like my son and my son was part of the writing process. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that those feelings that I articulate in the book were authentic to what he felt. So I wrote it and I said, is this, you know, and he's like, yes, this, no, this, a little more of that. Um, and he picked the names of all the characters in the book and the teachers in all of my books are the real teachers who helped my children along. And it's my little way of saying thank you to them. So I use their real names. Um, and they kind of co-author it with me, for lack of a better word. But yes, the first one is about him. The second one is about my youngest son. And at the time when I wrote it, his favorite character was um, George in in Captain Underpants. And so he named the character George. And then the other two books have female lead characters. And that was very purposeful because the the number of the rates of diagnosis between females and males in neurodiversity is hugely different right boys get identified with ADHD when they're in like second grade girls don't get identified until they're 50 right like that's wow. a big problem and 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 when you think about what the media does every time you think of a neurodivergent character it's a white guy and right. he's smart right. right like that's what we see and so i'm like that's not okay like the girls need to see themselves in the books too. And so while the stories are the true stories that my children experience, the characters are girls and, mm-hmm. and they're purposefully girls of color because they are the least, um, they have the least, the lowest level of diagnosis of any category of child um, for neurodiversity, which means they are not getting the help they need. So do you know what, I know you said one in five individuals has some sort of a neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Is it because I know like it's one in four women, one in six men, as far as abuse numbers go, do you know the men versus women and the numbers of the neurodiversity? I don't know that. Um, but, uh, but all the studies say that the women's rates are so underserved, mm-hmm. right? It dramatically underserved. Um, and it's hard because it manifests itself a little differently in women than it does in men and women. So in, if you think about a, a boy who has ADHD, typically you see that they're fidgety in class and they can't sit still and they call out and, and, and it's a kind of classic. This is what you think of with ADHD. It doesn't manifest itself like that with girls, right? Girls may show challenges in social settings. They may not be hyperactive. Um, and girls tend to be much better at hiding it. And there's a concept called masking. You mask your disability, you mask um, your difference and you pretend to be like everybody else. And then you come home and you fall apart Mm. and girls are very good at masking. And so 
teachers and parents don't recognize it, right? They don't see that difference. All of the tests for something like autism have been designed on boys, Mm. right? They haven't been designed using girls and and autism manifests itself differently with girls. Um, And so there's all this kind of structural challenge in terms of diagnosing girls versus boys. But what you are seeing is the rates of adults of diagnosis for something like ADHD have gone up over children now four times than the children. And that is being driven by women. Because what happens is the kids get diagnosed as neurodivergent and neurodivergence is mostly genetic. And so suddenly the parent turns around and says, wait a minute, you know, my two kids are neurodivergent and I do a lot of the same things that they do. And I see the world the way they see the world. What about me? Mm-hmm. And after the kids get diagnosed, then the moms get diagnosed. And that's what's kind of driving this increase in numbers. But it would be amazing if these, if the kids, when they are six, seven, eight, could get the diagnosis and not right. go through a lifetime of, of guilt and, and kind of low self-esteem until they get to the point where they're like, oh, this is who I am and now I can get help. So you said you were diagnosed at 47, correct? Yep. And that was because of your, your children? Because of my kids. And Got so it. they went through the process and then we would joke around and we say, of course, mommy's neurodivergent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, look at the way we act. We all act the same. And, and they said to me, they're like, well, you have to go get tested too. And how after I made them go do it. How could I say no? Yeah. So I went and I got tested and, and, and lo and behold, here I am neurodivergent. And I told them and we all high-fived each other and we're like, we're part of this cool club. And I really do everything I can for my kids to focus on the strengths that it brings them, right? Because I want them to be proud of who they are. And when when I was diagnosed, my youngest was in first grade, second grade, something like that. And he said, mommy, I'm not going to tell everybody that I have ADHD. And I was like, okay, you know, like that's private. You mean it? And he's like, because I don't want to brag. And I was like, <laughs> yes, gold star, mom. Like, that's exactly right. Like, I want them to say there are things that my brain can do that are amazing. And I'm going to focus on all of that because as a parent, if I can focus on the strengths and not dwell on all their challenges, then the rest of the world will start looking at their strengths too, right? right? It has to start somewhere and then they'll start focusing on their strengths. But as a parent, if all I do is say, this is hard for my kid and this is hard for my kid and this is why this is hard for my kid, then that's what my kids are going to see. And they're going to grow up with the same kind of self-esteem that I had, which is not okay, right? Because it's not a bad thing. It's just a difference. So you've written these books to help children. Now you as an adult know that you are, are also neurodiverse. Are you maybe in the works of doing something for adults too? or just strictly for children? I write and illustrate my books. And so it's really easy for me to focus on the um, on the picture book genre, right? Yeah. For me, it's like getting them when they're young, right? Getting them to feel good about themselves when they're four, five, and six. If I can get them then, then the rest of their lives will be easier. Sure. Um, so no, the, the grown-up thing, for me, reading 
is still very hard and, and thus writing is hard. I consume all of my books via audiobooks mm. um, because that's how I learn. Um, and when I discovered an audiobook, suddenly the whole world of literature opened up to me in a way that it had never done before. But as a result, I think writing is still something that would be hard. And so writing an adult book would be very, very challenging for me. There are a lot fewer words in a picture book that I have to worry about spelling um, versus an adult book. So what do you do now, uh, knowing your diagnosis, to help yourself? Obviously, audio, I shouldn't say help yourself. That's not maybe the right word. But what modalities and tools are you using with your neurodivergency? Obviously, you said audiobooks are one thing that help you. They are. And and again, other people have different experiences, right? Some of them can't focus with audiobooks, but for me, it's, it, it works. And um, I'm constantly, I have fidget tools and you can't see me, but I'm holding <laughs> a fidget tool um, and a fidget toy all the time. And when I was younger, I used to take metal like hangers from the dry cleaners and like them and that was like my de facto fidget before they were something you could buy on Amazon yeah Um, and so I'm okay taking these to meetings with me right like and I'm like no this is what I need to help me focus and if you don't like it too bad but (laughs) like (laughs) this is this is me and then um there are other things that I have learned in my life that work for me like I am one of these crazy people who has an empty inbox because my ability to focus is like is so limited in that way that I need to address whatever that email is now or leave it there until I address it, which has to be today because I have to go to bed with the empty inbox. Otherwise, my life becomes chaotic and everything falls apart. But I've set up these like structures for myself. That's like, this is when this has to be done. And this is how I can organize so that I can be a much more functioning kind of member of society. My husband is not neurodivergent. And he sometimes steps back and he looks at us as a family. And he's just like, what is going on in this house? Like, how do you all (laughs) like, you know, because the dishwasher, you know, three dishes are put away. And then I'm somewhere else doing like, who knows what and like, but at the end of the day, it all it all gets done. The dishes are done laundry's put away, like, I'm able to function. But he now knows that it's okay that only three dishes are put away because that's the way her brain works. Right. And that's okay. And that's good because that's also what leads her to illustrate books and write books and do all this other stuff that, that she may not have been able to do otherwise. So you're, I'm having a major Tiffany epiphany right now is what I call it. Um, So I've always suspected that my dad has some form of autism But, like, he never graduated high school. He was always sloughing junior high. Like, never... And and I've tried to ask him as an adult, you know, why why didn't you ever want to be in school? He's like, I just didn't like teachers. It was just hard for me. And um, there's a... It's. I was going to ask you about the genetic side of this because genetically, within my dad's side of the family, almost every boy that is born tends to have some sort of a... A disability or challenge. I hate to use the word disability, just maybe neurodiversity, as you're mentioning. A difference, a brain difference. Yes, a difference. And so, and we've looked at that and we're like, why is it always the boys in the family? 
And it seems that the girls tend to be quote unquote normal. And I don't even like to use that word either. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm having this epiphany because I've always thought, I mean, my dad just socially is awkward. He just doesn't get when he's around people like he'd be that person that picks something hot off of a plate and like, ah, and puts it back on the plate. And it's a community (laughs) plate like people know not to do that, but he doesn't. But he's so smart with music. He can tell you what album, what year, what track, like everybody in the band. History, loves history. He's great at art. So all of that kind of the left brain, I guess, is left brain, right? Yeah. Um, But the other stuff he doesn't get, like he doesn't know how to communicate with me. He's told my you know, aunts and uncles, like, I just don't know how to communicate. And so I've always just thought that he is neurodivergent. But then I look at my life because you said this is genetic, right? So both of my brothers are neurodivergent for sure, diagnosed and everything. Um, where myself, I always tell people I have CDO, which is OCD, but the letters have to be in order. <laughs> so, yep. um, and I've always attributed it to because I grew up in abusive environments and 23 different elementary schools and bouncing around. So it's like my way of having control in my life. But I'm sitting here thinking maybe I need to go and and get maybe a diagnosis because there's certain things about me. Like I'm like you, I have to do audiobooks. I'm easily distracted. Like if I read a book, my mind starts thinking about a bazillion other things, which is funny because I'm actually writing a book that's coming out next year. And it's been it's taken me 19 years to write it because it's just been that hard. So um, anyways, the show is not about me, but I just had a little epiphany as you were talking that uh, maybe I, I also have something I need to look into. The beauty of neurodivergence is that it does not look the same for any of us, right? People talk about the autism spectrum, but all neurodivergence manifests itself in a spectrum. Mm. It will look different for everybody. And um, like I said, it definitely looks different for women than it does for men. And and so, you know, it, it doesn't mean if you're if somebody in your family is neurodivergent, you will be, right? And I'm sure. not a clinician. Sure. But looking at at your father and saying, I don't look like that doesn't mean that you are not right. And if right. you think you are, it will just the diagnosis alone can do so much for your mental health, right? It really helps explain so many things that we as people can be so hard on ourselves about, right? And, and like, I suck at spelling. I'm totally fine with that now, right? Like I own it in a way that I wouldn't be able to do before because before uh, me sucking at spelling meant that I was de- I was deficient in something, mm. and I'm not deficient in something. My brain's just different. I'm wired differently, and there are other things that I do, kind of that I can do in incredible ways, right? Like your father with the music, and and that's okay. But right. I was able to come to that level of peace about myself because I was able to put an understanding. I don't even want to put a label on it. Like it's right. an understanding of how my brain works differently than other people's brains may work. And that gives you a sense of peace and clarity about yourself that I think is huge. Yeah. I mean, I'm also seeing too, like I freak out with change, freak out. And some people don't understand my behavior. (laughs) Like uh, my neighbor moved. I've talked about this in another episode, but my neighbor moved across the street and I immediately shut down, 
like was angry and people were like, what the heck is your problem? Like just in all aspects of my life, it was coming out. I'm like, why, why am I feeling this way? Why am I acting this way? And it was underlying because my neighbor was leaving. And change tends to be one of those things that is very hard for neurodivergent people. Right. Every single one of my books has an element of change in it because change is hard. Right. And for the most part, we like structure. Right. Right. And even though I have a hard time focusing, I need order. Right. Order gives me that sense of calm and control, as you said, about something in our lives. Right. So. So where would somebody go? Like, let's say somebody's listening to this and they are starting to have their own epiphanies and they say, oh, my gosh, I want to go get checked out and and see if maybe this is something that I've had my whole life and have been so hard on myself about. You know what I mean? So where does somebody start to to get that diagnosis? Um, Depending on if you have a good relationship with your primary care physician, that's the first place you can go. And if you don't, then you can look at at psychologists. They're the ones that do the diagnosis. Um, but even even before that, you know, if you Google, you know, autism or ADHD or or any of these, there's a huge universe of of, of things that fall under neurodiversity. Um, they will list out a whole bunch of symptoms. You will see kind of what the symptoms are, and in some places, there are online tests that kind of are the first step that give you a sense of like, is it worth me? going in and and paying the money to see a doctor to do to do all of this. Got it. Now with these books, sorry, I kind of went off on a little tangent there <laughs> no, for a moment. Okay. But with these books, have you been able to implement them into schools locally and maybe even, you know, on a yes. national level? Yes. And um, they are implemented in some schools. And on my website, I have teacher guides or lesson plans that have been developed by a school psychologist and tested in the classroom with kids. And those are free for anybody who wants to just download them. And they work great for parents too. Um, Because for me, it's about getting these books out there and getting as many, getting in the hand of as many kids who need them. And so I try to make them as accessible. So that's why I created these guides for schools, for teachers and for parents. My books, as we said, um, are also an audiobook because how could I, right. the person who only, who only, um, who only listen to audiobooks, create books and not have them accessible that way. The font is dyslexic friendly and the pictures are purposefully um, simple so that a child with ADHD can focus on the story and not get distracted by all the pretty illustrations. And so they really are accessible to as many learners as I could possibly get them accessible to. Now, where does somebody buy your book? Obviously your website, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, but are you also yeah. on Amazon? I'm on I'm on Amazon, I'm on Audible, I'm on Barnes and Nobles, I'm in a bunch of local bookshops, which I always love supporting, um, and in some libraries, so um, they're all over the place, but I think usually the easiest is Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, because that's where people tend to buy most of their books. Sure. Now, uh, let's give that website out to those, uh, so I love the free guides and everything for teachers that might be listening. What is that website? It's so I'm the only Savan Hong in the entire world, which <laughs> makes um, it really easy. <laughs> That's great. So, so my website is Savan, S-I-V-A-N Hong, H-O-N-G dot com. Love it. And do you have any social media and also I support do. groups as well? Do you have anything like that that you offer? 
So I, I am not a therapist, but sure. when, when people, people definitely reach out to me and ask me and, and I can steer them in the direction of, of different online support groups that I think can be pretty helpful and connect them to people. But my biggest presence is on Instagram and I'm at, at Savan underscore Hong underscore author. And then I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn and I have a really hard time with Twitter. So sometimes I'm on there, but most <laughs> of the time I'm not because for me, like that is like distraction overload and my brain goes haywire. So that's hard for me, but, um, but mostly on Instagram and, um, and I always answer everybody who emails me or private messages me. And your Facebook one is the same. Yeah. Savon Hung uh, uh, author. author. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I'm with you on the Twitter thing. I've never had a Twitter. I don't ever go to Twitter. It's just not my I thing. So. I can't. My brain doesn't work that way. And then like, yeah. I tried TikTok because like I'm old and I feel like I should be on TikTok because a lot of the people who buy my books are younger parents. And again, like all the little like like the likes popping up and everything. I'm like, this is like, my brain goes into sensory overload. So I will stick to like my single frame images. And I'm like, that's what I can do. <laughs> sure, sure. And just to reiterate, you guys, this is called the Super Fun Days book series. Uh, I got to ask, do you have more in the works? I do. I'm working on my fifth book. And um, Tiffany, you and I laughed earlier about our pets and it's about a dog. Um, okay. So that one will be in the works probably coming out next year. Wonderful. Is it about your dog? It is. It's about, so when my youngest, no, sorry, my oldest was really, really little. He was terrified of dogs. And every time he saw a dog, he put his hands over his ears because they were loud and he had sensory challenges and he would like, he did not want to be near a dog, but he created an imaginary friend that was a dog that slept with him every night and he named him Lemon. And this imaginary friend would be there and protect him and be gone in the morning. And so finally, we were like, we need to get him a dog. And um, we got on a waiting list for for um, service dogs that failed, um, particularly service dogs for uh, autistic kids who failed the program. And we finally got this fluffy golden retriever. And we were very nervous to bring him home because, as I said, like my son's terrified of them. But we brought him home and my son sticks his head around the corner and he looked at the dog and he walked over to the dog. and He's like, oh, hi, Lemon. And it's as if his imaginary friend and the real dog morphed into one. And the two of them walked upstairs and that dog sleeps next to my son's bed every night as if like it was this magical moment. And so that's what the next book is about. And your dog's name is Lemon? And now his name is Lemon because that was the name of the imaginary friend. How Mm -hmm. awesome is that? Wow. That like gives me goosebumps. That's very (laughs) cool. That's very, very cool. And I know that you are a part of the ASPCA as well. So now you are all about the animals. I'm all, yes. My, my cat has three legs. Like we, 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 we do a lot (laughs) for the little, um, the fur balls in our life. That's wonderful. So I got to ask you, what's in your five-year plan? I know you've got this other book in the works with the dog, but what do you think big, you know, big picture five years from now? That's a great question. Um, I'm not good at thinking that far ahead because five years ago, I would have never imagined that I was a children's book author, right? Like I was in corporate America. And before that, I was a business school professor. Like I my, I jump career so fast, but I have to say, this is the one that has been the most fulfilling in my whole life because 
it's hard. I don't really know what I'm doing all the time. And I get emails from parents that tell me how meaningful these books are for their children. And I can't imagine stopping. Right. So because of that, I would say I will still be doing this. (laughs) I'll be on book 10. (laughs) And do you self-publish? I do self-publish and it's very purposeful. Um, I'm a bit of a control freak. And in order, I can understand that. (laughs) Right. And in order to get the kind of book I wanted out there, I didn't want somebody who didn't understand it, who wasn't neurodivergent to tell me what a neurodivergent child was going to relate to. Right. And um, I wanted the illustrations to be really, really simple. And when you look at um, traditionally published children's books, those illustrations are magical. They're beautiful. But when my kids were reading those books, suddenly they'd be like, why is there a red bird in the tree in the forest? Which had nothing to do with the story. Mm. And I'm like, I wanted these books to be for this particular audience um, and to help this audience. And I didn't want all of the other stuff that gets in a way. And look, I've been fortunate because every single one of my books has been number one on Amazon for children's books with disabilities at one point or another. And um, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And (laughs) so, um, so clearly, clearly there was a need and not traditional publishing doesn't always fill that gap. Right. And you illustrate your own book. So I just got to ask real quick, because this has been on the back of my mind. Have you always been good at illustrations and drawings or? No, I was a doodler in school. Mm. And so this is what I mean when I said, like, I I don't know what I'm doing. Sometimes I have (laughs) this like idea that, well, like, of course I could illustrate (laughs) these books. And so I did. And I started off with like a drawing of my son and I put it on the computer and then I wrote the books and then I was like, and then I illustrate, I was like, nobody told me I couldn't. So I'm going to do it. Right. And that's kind of the way I have taken the world by storm because I'm just going to do it until somebody tells me I can't. And even then I'll still do it anyway. I really love what you're doing. I think that it's making a tremendous impact. Obviously, the the parents are reaching out to you and telling you that this is really making a huge impact. So, man, keep on doing what you're doing for as long as you want to keep doing it, right? Yeah, thank you. So I, I got a couple other questions before we move on to 20 questions. Oh, good. Running I can't out wait. Of time. I'm so excited. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, what do you know for sure? I know for sure that... Um, that believing in a child will make all the difference in the world to them. Yes, absolutely. Something I I definitely can relate to and wish I had growing up as well. So very true words spoken there. Uh, the next thing I want to ask you is, first of all, why did you come on the show and what are you hoping the audience is going to take away from today's episode? I came on the show because when I listened to all the other podcasts that you did, you talk to people who overcome things that are hard, yes. right? And that's what my books are about. Like, and obviously my books are about five-year-olds who overcome things that are hard, but they're still things that are hard. And when we overcome that kind of the energy and the contagion of the power of that experience is magical. And yes. so I wanted to share my experience with your audience as well. Yes, I love that. And then finally, who is Savon Hong? 
I am first and foremost, that's hard. It's because I want to say I'm first and foremost a mom. But if I said that, it's not really fair to my kids because then I'm putting all of the pressure of my identity on that, (laughs) which would be awful, right? Um, But I think, I really think when when I step back, that first and foremost, I try to be kind, right? I try to treat everybody the way I want to be treated. I want the world to be as fair as possible, even though I know it's not. Um, and I live my life with, with kind of that mantra in the back of my head. And everything else that I am, whether it's a wife or a mother or a professor or an author or all these other things that I've been, those are just moments in time. But that's not who I am at my core, right? Like that can change. And so at the end of the day, Savan Hong is a kind person, or I, I hope to be. That. I love that. All right. Let's go into 20 questions, if you okay. will. So choose a number between one and 20. Nine. Always I'm, nine. <laughs> you know what's funny? That's the first question I laid my eyes on when I pulled this paper up. Okay. <laughs> What was your favorite show as a kid and why? Oh, gosh. As a kid, I think I would say, I don't know if you guys even remember, it was a show called The Magic Garden. Okay. Um, and it was like a children's show on PBS. And um, it had these two women who would play the guitar and sing songs and tell stories. And um, at the end of the show, they would always say a list of names of all the kids like hi this kid and hi that kid and I would sit there waiting patiently for somebody to say Savan and they never did but it made me watch that show every single episode (laughs) because I didn't want to miss the chance that somebody actually said my name oh wow that's awesome it reminds (laughs) me of that uh show like the magic school bus I think which was also on PBS yes I mean with the teacher magic school bus yes my kids (laughs) love that show Well, that is awesome. I am so proud of you and everything that you're doing in this world and so honored to have had you on the podcast as well. Keep on shining your light. Keep doing what you're doing for people who are neurodivergent, especially kids. And uh, you've shed some light on my own life here today. So uh, thank you very much. I think everything happens for a reason. and, And again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. You bet. And those of you that have tuned in, if this resonates with you at all, or maybe you know somebody that this episode could benefit them, maybe they have questions about uh, what they can do for their own children and maybe some resources out there, share this with them. This is a labor of love for me, as you know. So if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, just go ahead, rate, review, like, do all the things, because again, this is just something I want people to know about as a platform uh, for all different things in life and challenges in life so thank you so much again Savon and as always you guys you are worthy you are enough and keep on shining your light have a great day thank you for listening to speak loud if this message resonated with you please feel free to share it with anyone you feel could use the support to find out more information about share our movement And to join the cause, please visit sharethemovement.org. Until next time.